0: of this podcast. Today is Thursday, October 20th, 2022, and that means it is the day after my last day at Chevron. LinkedIn says I was there for a year, but it doesn't feel like it was that long a time in terms of enjoyability, and it, it doesn't feel like it was that short a time in terms of how much I've learned and enjoyed building relationships with the team here in the DJ Basin. Compared with my departure from some places, Chevron practically threw me a ticker tape parade my last few weeks. A place I worked previous to this, by contrast, my boss, who was homesick with COVID when I turned in my resignation letter with the two weeks notice, wanted me taken home that day or the next. He definitely wanted me gone before he got back from sick leave. But... They weren't even going to tell me until the following Monday. That was kind of the compromise. We'll let him work this week, but then we'll make sure we take him home the first day that you would be back. That's what they worked out with my boss at the time. But they weren't even going to tell me until I just showed up that following Monday of the last week I was planning to work. And my alternate, the other INE technician, had heard about this. I hadn't heard about it, but he'd heard about it. And he let it slip to me covertly. So I had to call my boss, uh, or rather my boss's boss, and ask him about it. And sure enough, he says, well, yeah, you know, hemmed hawed. Yeah, you know, I, that would be okay if you didn't work that last week <laughs> of the two. <laughs> Which uh, several people, including both of the uh, plant managers, were not in favor of they were just appalled because here I was working I was willing to work those last two weeks and they were nonplussed but their objections basically I guess you could say bought me uh if you want to think of it that way one extra week and then that last week was going to be uh a, uh a, a, you know we'll pay you but you you just stay home sort of a deal which was fine by me. It wasn't a favor to me that I was going to work an extra two weeks. It was a favor to them. But nevertheless, my boss's boss still wanted me to come in that last Monday to check in all my tools, my truck, my laptop, my credit card, even though I had left all of that the previous Friday when I found out that here I was going to have a surprise waiting for me the next Monday. Uh, I left all of that, checked it in, asked one of the plant managers to drive me home, which he was very happy to do and didn't mind at all so I could drive on my own uh, in instead of waiting for somebody to take me home Monday. But when I came back in to officially check these things in and uh, have the custody transfer and whatnot, uh, I, I waited in my truck that morning until the management team was finished with their weekly Monday morning meeting. And... I will never forget, and I certainly have been remembering it this week as I was coming down the home stretch with Chevron. I'll never forget my boss's boss coming out all indignant as I'm sitting in my truck waiting for them to finish up their morning meeting. And uh, he, <laughs> he made some comments about how I'm still on the clock, I'm still getting paid, and the least I could do is pick up a broom and sweep the shop or something. Uh, hardly the proper way to express gratitude for having, in my case, moved my family to states to take the job, especially considering I had been on call, I kid you not, 24-7, 24-7 even when I was on vacation for over two years. I had an alternate, but somehow he was allowed to take vacation when I took vacation and just not be on call when I was supposed to be off. And uh, I had taken that in stride, but they whittled down my compensation. and just it was it was a bad situation all around. That's why I left. Uh, by contrast, though, by contrast, after a year of systems integration work here with Chevron, and despite bracing for abuse, both my wife and I, I think had a, a little bit of a, a uh, professional case of PTSD, Professional traumatic stress disorder. Uh, despite bracing for <laughs> abuse and contempt when I announced I was leaving Chevron, I think the embarrassment was that of riches. On my way out, everyone I have worked for, with, and alongside the past year complimented my intelligence, my skill, my professionalism, my courteousness my enjoyability to work with my perceptiveness and my potential and everyone to a man and woman said they were sad to see me go and that I will be greatly missed and that it's been again an absolute pleasure working with me so that was really great that was that was really really great and honestly not at all what I was resigning myself to in putting in my two weeks notice. I was kind of expecting to get uh, the cold shoulder and to have people upset at best, uh, but just have it be more of a cold contempt. And yet that was not at all what I was sent off with. In fact, uh, the opposite, actually, It did totally the opposite, where I was told if you would like a job here again in the future, Keep our number handy and do call us if things don't work out where you're going. Do call us and we would be happy for you to work here again. In fact, if you don't want to leave, you're you're welcome to not quit. That's totally fine. But we understand. We're happy that you have this opportunity. We're sure you're going to do great. You're going to be a great asset where you're headed to next. And uh, thanks for your thanks for your hard work, both foreman. Actually, in the automation department, told me yesterday as well that I am very welcome to come back and work there again if I ever want to or if things don't work out with the next opportunity. So that was really great, really, really swell. I think very highly of the automation team at Chevron and uh, it pains me to leave, although I have to. I just I just have to. Uh, it, it comes down to math and I'm sure it comes down to math for them too and that they would uh, work with me more if they could, but I think their hands are tied just quite frankly, by corporate policy. Big companies, that happens. Things are in place, uh, mechanisms and rules and uh, tripwires bureaucratically and red tape-wise that sometimes just don't make it possible, that don't make it possible to increase compensation past a certain point, uh, regardless what the situation on the ground is. And so I think that's what happened here and why they couldn't quite counter what I was being offered somewhere else. But... If down the road it ends up being that I work with these guys again, whether we're both somewhere else or I come back or they come to where I'm at, whatever, any possible combination of those scenarios, it wouldn't bother me because it was mutual. I really enjoyed working with them. I think very highly of their professionalism. I think we made a really good team. And uh, I wish them all the best as I move on, starting my new job on Monday where I'm going to be a controls programmer. It's similar to what I've been doing, but it's different enough that I will have to get myself into a new rhythm, not just with new people in a new place, but a new uh, role specifically adjacent to the roles I've been filling for the past however many years it's been, 10 years that I've been in oil and gas, six years that I've been doing automation controls, I&E instrumentation systems work, uh, but different enough. Controls Programmer, it's gonna be much more specific to the local on-site automation programming. Not necessarily just dabbling here and there, but responsible for the whole program, getting it ready, making sure that it's tested out, making sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, making sure all the documentation is in place, being available to support the folks who are installing it and testing it when it goes live but then also trying to make sure that process is as smooth as possible from the program's integrity standpoint by testing it out before it's in a live system back at a test lab. So that'll be great. I think it'll be a really good experience and that it will fit in nicely with my other experience. I think my other experience is going to feed into being able to do this job well. Uh, I'm working with people that my brothers worked with for years, who uh, I know by reputation from his telling me stories. They doubtless have uh, heard of me from him. And so that'll be fun. That'll be different. That'll be very interesting in many ways, I am sure. But I'll be completely honest with you. This really comes down to dollars and cents. And it does on all sides. At the end of the day, it comes down to dollars and cents for a business. In order for them to stay in business and to do well and to succeed, they have to make money. And in order for an individual provider for his family, a father, a husband, uh, to do his job, he has to make money. And it's not to say I haven't been making money. That's not to say uh, at all that I wasn't being compensated. But it is to say that given the circumstances with regards to inflation, with regards to this current economy... With a recession that we're headed into, I have a lot of dependents. I have a wife and eight kids, and I'm not going to apologize for having eight children. What I am going to do is I'm going to work really hard and work as smart as I possibly can, and I'm going to try and make as much money as I possibly can because I have mouths to feed, I have backs to clothe, I have (laughs) a house that we are still renting over three years in to living in Colorado, that it's 2,600 square feet between the 10 of us. And that's not enough room. It's just, frankly, not enough room if we can help it. And so I'm going to try and help it, Uh, quite frankly. It's expensive to rent. You don't get a return on your investment in the long run. Also, it's not your property. So you really can't just do whatever you want to it, good, bad, or indifferent. And what we need is a bigger house. And what I want is a big, beautiful house that is dignified, respectable, has nice materials. It's going to last so that we have a staging area for living life, for launching each one of these eight kids out into the world one by one, by God's grace, raising them, training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, giving them a good quality home education, having people over, being hospitable having biblical training group, for instance, in our house, and people being comfortable and having enough room to spread out and all be able to discuss and whatnot. That's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in a big, beautiful house for. I don't think there's anything wrong whatsoever, nothing to apologize for, being an American with wanting a big, beautiful house. The question is, why do you want that big, beautiful house? Not, do you want a big, beautiful house? We're not Going to go back to not my family, not my house. We're not going to go back to the hair shirt wearing self flagellation thing because I don't need to do penance. Christ paid it. And I am not trying to put my family in squalor just to prove that we're very good Christians. Now, the flip side is when times are tough economically and the best you can do is the best you can do and things are wore out or you can't afford the best quality. Or you do have to rent, you do have to be dependent uh, on a property management company or the owner or contractors or whoever, right? So be it, right? And, and you be content and you thank the good Lord that he's provided and he has a purpose for that and he will work all things to the good, including that. But if 10 years from now, somebody goes digging back through old episodes of my podcast and they hear me talking about us being in a really tough spot economically, financially, And, uh, you know, not living in in a nice house and that just floors them because we've got a big, beautiful 3,500 square foot, 4,000 square foot, you know, late model home uh, on some acreage in a place where (laughs) people want to live, you know, routinely. You know, if that comes as a surprise 10 years from now and we learn to be content with much and with little, and the good Lord has a plan there, well then, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to feel sad. I'm not going to be embarrassed because, quite frankly, uh, that is what I'm working hard to provide for my family. And I think I can be a good example not just to my sons, not just to my daughter, but also to others in saying that a certain variation on what is known as the American dream is nothing at all to cast aspersions on. It is nothing to disparage. It is nothing to apologize for. It's nothing to rebuke. If you are building a house and planting a garden and planting a vineyard and taking a wife and having children and raising sons and daughters and then giving those sons and daughters away in marriage and encouraging them to have grandsons and granddaughters born in your house, you know, if you're doing all of that, even though it's a biblical command, and thus saith the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, you know, it, it, even if you're doing all of that, but your reasons are it's all about you, 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 where's the blessing, right? You're going to get the same blessing, the same reward that the Pharisees got. If you're doing it before men, to be seen by men, to be rewarded by men, to be spoken well of by men, beware. But if you're doing all of those things, and actually, <laughs> actually the trend these days is to cast aspersions on the American dream so-called or to rebuke it and to say we should all be socialists because Jesus was a socialist, because, you know, progressivism is holding sway. Uh, If you're doing those things, you're pursuing the the American dream because you genuinely love your wife, men, you love your children, fathers, you love the people in your local church, and you want to be hospitable and have a place that they could come and stretch out, a place for them. You know, and and let me give you another scenario. Another reason why having a big, beautiful house that's in good condition is something that is legitimate if your reasons are along certain lines. My mother just lost her home in Fort Myers, Florida, and it's being refurbished and restored and all of that, but she's going to have an issue with the insurance company and she she does. I mean she's she's going to, but she does already, where they're saying you had insurance for hurricane, but you didn't have insurance for flood. And because the storm surge is actually what destroyed all of your furniture and, and all your things needed to be thrown away because of the storm surge, we're not going to cover that because you didn't have flood insurance. Now the the condo, the hoa for the condo had flood insurance, and so The walls are being redone. The floors are being torn out and redone. The cabinets are being replaced. But her furniture, it sounds like they're going to try and hang her out to dry. No pun intended. But she's staying with my brother right now. And my brother's got a new construction home. And his mother-in-law lives with them. And it's my brother and his wife and their son and his mother-in-law. And now my mother as well, our mother. And you know what, if your parents are getting older and you're trying to take care of them in their old age, is it helpful to have more rooms than what you absolutely, strictly speaking, narrowly need, so-called need? Uh, Yeah, because actually you may need to have some extra space in case some family member loses their home in a natural disaster. Some family member uh, gets sick and can't take care of themselves and needs you to take care of them. And that's your responsibility because <laughs> the New Testament is very clear. Paul writes in the New Testament that he who does not provide for the needs of his extended family, especially those of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. And so I'm looking at aging parents. I'm looking at a father who's over 70 now, who's semi-retired, as he says. And I'm thinking, when the time comes, are parents being divorced they can't both move in with my little brother. They can't both move in with me. Surely, definitely can't both move in with me with eight kids and my wife and myself living in our 2,600 square foot ha- house that we're renting. That's not going to work. And so what am I putting in place? What What work am I investing in making room so that we have a guest room in the meantime? It's an overflow room, perhaps. Uh, In the meantime, somebody's passing through and they want to just stop in and stay with us for a night or two on their way somewhere else. That's fine. But more to the point and more imperatively, so that my father and my father-in-law have some place to actually be roomed when they can't take care of themselves anymore, which is probably coming down the pike in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, that means I need to work right now to make that feasible, to make it possible, to where it's not totally disruptive for my family when the time comes, to where we're not not caught flat-footed, like, ah, man, who knows? Like, what are we going to do? No idea, right? So if the American dream is all about you, 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 and we just, you know, clothe it in some Jesus language to try and sanctify our selfishness, that's Very clearly, not something that God is going to reward and bless. You'll receive your blessing and your reward when people speak well of you and you get that being honored in the public square business. But if our version of the American dream is I want a house that's in good condition, in good shape, that's safe to live in, that is safe from a social standpoint as well as a physical standpoint, it functions, it works. It's handsome. It's not disgraceful. It's not dis- It's not depressing. It's not uh, distasteful. People can stop in and feel comfortable being a guest in your home. You can be hospitable. You can plan to be hospitable with a home like this. Well, you know what? That's motivating for me. And that's what I'm going to work for. And that's what I am working for. And I'm thankful for an opportunity to potentially uh, make that realizable. I think looking at the numbers and I'm not going to brag and boast about uh, counting chickens that haven't hatched yet. God willing, we live and do this or that. But looking at the numbers, potential cash flow, uh, all bets are off these days with inflation and, and what's going on in the world. But I think we may very well be able to buy a home here in Colorado and buy a decent home in decent shape in a decent neighborhood of a decent size, of a decent quality, With the market conditions, housing market conditions being such as they are uh, within the next year or two. And so I'm I'm very hopeful for that. In the next year, it would be great. That would be fantastic. Uh, So you can pray for us in that regard. Hopefully, that's the way that it goes. I'm going to just try and be content, be thankful, and uh, work hard and smart as as much as I can towards that end. But in other news, getting off of the uh, personal stuff, for a bit, let's talk briefly about some articles that were sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, JP Chavez, from First Things Magazine. Uh, first of all, I've got one here: "Why Bros Failed at the Box Office" by Carl Truman. And this one is—it's uh, <laughs> it, interesting. Uh, Carl Truman writes for First Things Magazine that romance is dead. And the sexual revolutionaries killed it. So there was a sexual revolution relatively recently in the 1960s, 1970s here in the U.S. And free love was the order of the day. If you want to be liberated, so-called, you have to throw off all constraints on sexual activity. Sexual morality is repressive, and the way to be liberated is to just do whatever feels good with whoever you want to, whenever you want to, wherever you want to, however you want to, for as long as you want to, as often as you want to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that is to say, that is a abandonment, complete jettisoning of virtue and morality. And Carl Truman's got a very interesting point here, a very interesting observation that romance depends on virtue and morality. Romance is the pursuit of somebody of the opposite sex in a way that is virtuous, in a way that will be accepted socially, and yet at the end of it, I mean, the big idea of romance is sex, is the mating ritual. You are trying to attract a mate, and in Christian ethics, Christian morality, you are trying to woo a potential wife, men. So you want to convince this gal that you would make a good husband and you're showing her on the front end that you are going to be living with her in an understanding way if she's your wife someday. Now, by contrast, the flip side is the woman is trying to prove to the man that she will respect and honor and submit to him and that she is someone he would be willing to lay his life down for, essentially. I mean, that's really what it boils down to, is romance in the Christian tradition is about trying to woo, either to convince them to become your spouse on the front end, or to remind them of why they made that decision and why that was a good decision. (laughs) Romance is about within the confines of what God says is good and moral and upright and virtuous, trying to appeal to the other person and persuade them after a fashion that you are a good choice for mate. You're still a good choice if you are already married or you will be a good choice if they commit to you for life. But, as Truman points out, romance cannot exist in an environment where virtue and morality, where sex is concerned, is abolished or scoffed at or met with hostility. You can't have romance. You can't have a romantic comedy in a vacuum where virtue and morality are concerned. And I think this makes a lot of sense. I think what he's pointing out makes a lot of sense and it's encouraging to hear it it's thought-provoking, but it's also just encouraging to hear a counter to the smear that everyone is obligated to watch a movie about gay men flirting with and seducing one another or else they're bigots. No, that's a lot of nonsense. And kudos to Carl Truman for picking up the pen, mightier than the sword, to uh, have at that bollocks. But speaking of being accused of bigotry, I watched the entirety of Amazon's The Rings of Power series this week. I almost said, speaking of uh, gay romance, uh, I watched the entirety of The Rings of Power series this week. And the reason for my decision to do that, to binge watch uh, while I was running Missing Data Reports, was that it felt wrong to me to merely repeat the criticisms of others in this case. I did recently pass along what some of those were from a review Daniel Coates wrote and published at Not the B, but I don't want to leave off there, particularly because I do really enjoy Tolkien's work. I really do enjoy The Lord of the Rings, and it bothers me to think either A, this show might not be quite so bad, and I'm missing it, or another option, B. <laughs> Uh, the show really is that awful, and I'm not providing commentary. I'm, I'm just opting out because it would be upsetting, right? that That's not very uh, satisfying to say I'm just going to opt out. I'm not going to watch this because I don't want to be upset. But first, the good, right? Some good things about the show. Having watched all of season one, eight episodes, the art department did a fine job. There is a realism and a consistency to the aesthetics, to the costuming, to the way that the cities are portrayed or the the locales are shot. Uh, for the most part, there is a consistency with Peter Jackson's films that I was happy to see. And so, good on the art department. You did a fine job. Uh, the music is okay. Uh, I would put that in the good, I'm trying to look for good things to say about The Rings of Power. The music was okay. It's not as good as Howard Shore's. It's it's just not. It's <laughs> Howard Shore's music for Peter Jackson's films is some of the best. Uh, it's up there in terms of being evocative, grand, moving. Uh, it's up there with John Williams' Star Trek and Star Wars and Indiana Jones themes. but the music for this is okay it it does its job reasonably well and it's not too distracting. The premise of the show when it is set in the history of Middle Earth relative the films that Peter Jackson shot or the books which were the core of the inspiration for all of the above, Uh, The premise of the show is compelling and it's intriguing in a general sense. So the premise is this is the age prior to that, which the Hobbit, the fellowship of the ring, the two towers and the return of the King are set. So all of those books that you're more familiar with Peter Jackson's films, they're set in the third age. This show is set in the second age of middle earth. And is supposed to be a portrayal of the run-up to the Rings of Power being made in the first place. That's why it's called the Rings of Power. Go figure. And that's a, That's an interesting premise. Let's go back and let's figure out, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where Sauron is trying to cover all of Middle-earth in darkness? He wants to block out the sun and have orcs uh, be the dominant... Species apparently, and everyone else living in enslavement because supposedly um, slavery is freedom. It's very Orwellian. His view of how to make Middle Earth (laughs) palatable—I don't want to say make make uh, Middle Earth uh, great again, but you know, kind of, sort of. uh, His vision for Middle Earth is uh, Orwellian. It's nineteen eighty-four. He is Big Brother, but. The premise of the show is interesting, and it makes me curious to watch, and it makes me want to watch. So good job, Amazon, where that's concerned. Uh, they're not so good. They're not so good. The pacing is all over the place. The first two episodes were not so bad. Actually, I was either finished with episode two or well into it. And I told my wife, "You know what? This is this is okay. I think the negative reviews were overhyped and I, I I don't see what all the fuss is about. I think the the pacing was okay. The way things concepts, places, characters were introduced was good. Uh there were you know a couple of things where I'm just like the way that they cut around the map and have the name of places flash on the screen that I know that's conventional these days with regards to shows like this, but I it's not my favorite. I don't love it. Um, but you know if that's as bad as it gets, whatever. After the first two episodes, I feel like I started having more problems with this show, uh, particularly with regards to the time that it takes to travel from one place to another. It's not consistent within the context of either the show or Tolkien's map of Middle Earth. It makes little to no sense. There's no consistency. And it's important to note this is not the Mandalorian where you just, you know, kick on the hyperdrive and you're gonna go from Lothlorean to Numenor or whatever in the blink of an eye. No, no. This is all on horseback or on foot or in a boat. And the way that they shot things did not give sufficient uh, weight to the time that it would take to travel between these places. And I think that's unfortunate. It it compressed the geography in a subtle but unmistakable way. And I I think that was not so good. Uh, Also, too, from a chronological standpoint, In terms of the narrative, in terms of a consistency with Tolkien's other works, for instance, The Silmarillion, The Children of Huron, etc., the chronology of the Second Age from Tolkien's writings, I have heard, is greatly compressed as well. So things that happen over centuries or millennia are made to seem as though they're all happening at the same time very quickly in a very compressed way to fit the show. And it was possible, lest anyone say, well, it's a show, you know, like it's not quite the same thing. No, no, it was possible to make a fascinating series that would have been more faithful to the chronology of the books. It was possible to do that and maintain more fidelity to Tolkien's work. The fact that Amazon didn't go that route uh, feels lazy, frankly. It would have been challenging. But they could have gotten creative with it, and it would have been very, very interesting. The fact that they didn't do so is regrettable. And just to give you a quick example of what I mean, consider James Mishner's The Covenant and how it spans a very long period, a very long period of South Africa's history. And the way you connect these scattered points of time is... You're going to connect them by the events or families, right? This guy is long dead by the next jump, the next chapter, but now it's his grandson. And there's a reference back to what the main character from the previous chapter was doing and was about. And it's all the easier, actually, with the Rings of Power's premise, because you've got certain characters you can carry through and it would give even more of a sense that you do have elves living for a long, long, long time relative to the lifespans of men or relative to the lifespans of other creatures and characters, other races of Middle-earth. That could have been conveyed in a really, really interesting way. The fact that Amazon decided not to do that by compressing the chronology here, I think is very regrettable. Also, too, I think the writing and directing for dialogue in particular, it feels very often canned and stale and anachronistic. So some things are written, as far as dialogue goes, as though they're supposed to sound very profound. And they do at first blush, but they're inspired by lines from the Other movies from the Peter Jackson movies or from the books, obviously, and yet they have a clunkiness, they have a lack of grace and elegance if you consider them in more than a superficial, brief, uh, cursory glance sort of a way. So I'm inclined, actually, to agree with Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh on this point. Amazon just flat isn't capable of doing justice to Tolkien today. Given their pre-commitments philosophically, politically, culturally, given the moment we're living in right now, they just aren't capable, given their presuppositions, their pre-commitments. They're not able to do it. They can't do it because they don't embrace, they don't accept the premises of Tolkien's work, of his worldview. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't like it if they do understand it. They reject it, and they're trying to make war against it. And that's coming through in the way this is written, in the way that it's directed, in the way that it's shot, in the way that it's paced. And that's very unfortunate. The best they can do is imitate, but they can't replicate. The result is more a caricature than a continuation in many places. And what I would compare it to is if you see... Central American and South American uh, you know, pre-Columbian stonework. Let's say high in the Andes Mountains, uh, the Inca had some cities, some others as well, but but the Inca specifically, where you can see that different generations of builders did the masonry, and the oldest stuff is mind-bending for how precise it is. It does make you think the ancient Inca or their ancestors or whoever lived there, I'm not saying it was aliens because I don't think it was aliens, but some people think it was aliens, that they were somehow through some advanced technology actually molding the rock to fit perfectly together. And they had some way of moving ginormous rocks into place high up in the mountains in these remote places and making them fit perfectly how does that happen how does that work well apparently not only we forgot but also subsequent generations of the inhabitants of that region who lived in those places forgot because the more recent stonework is sloppy disjointed all over the place it doesn't look as good it's not as precise the rocks are a lot smaller they're a lot rougher they're not shaped they're not smooth somehow they lost the knowledge and the ability to do what their ancestors or the previous inhabitants of that region knew how to do. And that's what watching this show compared to even Peter Jackson's work 15 years ago, 20 years ago, feels like. That's what watching this show compared with reading Tolkien's books all the more feels like. The ability to put these things together neatly – in a profound way, has been lost because a certain ideology, a mode of thinking, a way of relating to God and ourselves and one another and creation has achieved a a kind of preeminence. And that's very unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. If we can do something about that, I think that'd be great and we should definitely put our minds to the task. But... Angst, for instance, angst is pervasive throughout the dialogue. Few to none of the folks involved in making this series seem capable of letting go of angst and irritation. Impatience and contempt seem written into every scene, and this is exceedingly tiresome, not to mention out of step with both Tolkien's books and Peter Jackson's film adaptations of those books especially when you see it from the elves in every scene, like Galadriel, it does not fit. It is out of place. The elves are supposed to be these very refined, composed, self-controlled, dignified folks in Middle-earth. That's their type. And Amazon clearly doesn't get that, doesn't understand that, or doesn't care. And which I don't know which is worse, that they wouldn't get it or that they wouldn't care when they do get it because they've got an axe to grind, no pun intended, for the dwarves. But the casting, speaking of races, casting of ethnically diverse actors, it obviously only needed to make sense along one very specific line, that is, woke culture and politics demands racial diversity in casting right now. And it doesn't have to make sense any farther than that. The odd irony is There's all this controversy these days. If, let's say, for instance, there's an LGBTQ character and a straight actor or actress is cast to play a homosexual or transgendered character, that's also a controversy. If somebody who is able bodied is cast to play somebody who is disabled, that's a controversy. If somebody who is reasonably skinny is cast to play somebody who, who as the story is written, as the screenplay is written, is supposed to be obese or overweight and they have to put on a fat suit. That's a controversy because the crew, the director, the producer, the studio should have hired a actor or actress who was naturally overweight. But all of this, all of those standards, all of that controversy Goes in the opposite direction and along completely different lines. If you're talking about a fictional alternative prehistory for Europe and what peoples would reasonably inhabit that part of the world, if we're talking about prehistoric Europe, let's have some black folk, let's have some Polynesian folk, let's have some Asian folk. Let's have some white European folk. Let's have some Middle Eastern folk. Let's have folk who definitely ethnically hail from the Indian subcontinent. Let's have people from all over the world as ethnically diverse a caste as possible. And it doesn't have to make sense. So, for instance, a clearly white character, a clearly of European descent character can have a person of color for their mother or daughter or son. And the audience is expected to say nothing negative or critical about it on pain of denunciation for racism. And that's a cheap trick that that is abuse of both the audience and the source material. And it doesn't bother me that an ethnically diverse cast would be put into these roles. You know, take star Wars for instance Star Wars has always been an ethnically diverse cast of characters and actors from all over the world. And the more diverse, the better, actually, because this is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And yeah, of course, you're going to have diversity. You've got diversity of species. You're going to have diversity of human characters as well. But in Middle Earth, it makes zero sense. The actress who plays... Balin's wife seems like a very fine actress. She does a fine job. She's an enjoyable actress to see portraying this uh, dwarvish uh, princess. But it makes zero logical sense that she's a black woman with a Scottish accent, living underground her entire life. How did she get so much melanin living underground her entire life in the mines? It makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. So anyway, that's bothersome. And the the woke aftertaste, it reminds me of aspartame and Splenda. And I don't like putting sugar substitutes in my coffee. It's gross. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't mind ethnic diversity at all at all. But the wokeism has got to go. That has got to go because it's a trick it's a scam moving on another piece from first things magazine medieval children by charlotte allen Uh, according to charlotte allen writing for first things magazine there's ample evidence that children in medieval europe did have childhoods and were parts of loving families where their moms and dads and grandparents all lived together in genuine enjoyment of and appreciation of one another And I'm going to read this extended quote for you. I don't have a whole lot to say on this, but I did find it interesting, and it does dovetail with some of these other things that we're talking about. And I quote, "Uh, Orm, however, has more in mind than simply using the rich collection of stories he has amassed to tell readers everything they would like to know about medieval childhood. His book is a deliberate counterattack against a notion that still has quite a bit of popular currency, that the whole concept of childhood as a distinct phase of human life is a social construction, an invention of bourgeois modernity, whose origins go back no further than the 17th century. The instigator of this theory was the French historian Philippe Aré, who contended in a widely read book translated into English as Centuries of Childhood, 1962, that medieval people regarded youngsters as inadequate adults, too small to work productively, and that most parents, perhaps because of the high rate of infant and childhood mortality during the Middle Ages, declined to form strong, effective bonds with their offspring. Moreover, we are told that those offspring married in their teens and spent only short portions of their lives with their mothers and fathers. Following in Aries' footsteps, the Princeton University historian, Lawrence Stone, argued in his The Family, Sex, and Marriage in England, 1500-1800, to 1800, 1977, that the pre-modern family was a large, porous, multi-generational unit that accommodated a constantly shifting membership of husbands, wives, in-laws, shirt-tail kin, and assorted offspring whose ties to others in the household were largely loose and opportunistic. This sort of message Resonated across the ideological spectrum. It was naturally appealing to Marxists, inclined to view the nuclear family as an an oppressive creation of modern capitalism, and also to Freudians, inclined to view the nuclear family as a wellspring of Oedipal tension and all around neurosis. Radical feminists who believed that women could and should raise their children unencumbered by such patriarchal impediments as husbands bought into the Aries Stone interpretation of family history, as did advocates of easy divorce, who maintained that there was nothing particularly natural about the two-parent household and that children were tough enough to take the household disruptions to which their fulfillment-seeking parents might subject them. Many secular social conservatives also enthusiastically adopted the Aries paradigm for Protestant apologists, it represented yet another opportunity to bash the Catholic Middle Ages as morally lax and demonstrate that Martin Luther's domestic church marked the first time Western European fathers took an interest in their children's Christian upbringing. And for those who regarded the rise of capitalism as a good thing, what could be better than its fostering of the middle-class Victorian household that sentimentalized children and devoted substantial and emotional to their rearing and education. To this day, it is not unusual to hear highly educated people remark offhand that, quote, there was no such thing as childhood in the Middle Ages, end quote. Arm's book joins a large number of more recent studies suggesting that the Aries paradigm has little to do with medieval reality, end quote. Okay, so a couple of quick, quick comments, brief comments. One, it's interesting to me how often this is a theme Uh, Take Trinitarian theology, for instance. This is a problem in the modern era that our views of the Trinity have been hijacked in all directions to try and support other notions, other positions. And that's not intuitive, and also it's cheap, and also stop it. Stop doing that. Uh, With regards to medieval childhood, it is what it is. If someone is trying to play this uh, gotcha game to leverage a very superficial understanding of medieval childhood without really looking at the evidence to try and prove some point against Catholicism, for instance, well, that's dirty and we shouldn't do that and we shouldn't buy into that. If someone is trying to use it to prove uh, feminism, that men are unnecessary and women can have a child without having to have a husband, and who needs fathers, anyways? Uh, you know, the medieval period, there was no such thing as childhood, and, you know, everybody turned out fine, I guess. Um, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. If the evidence shows that there was such a thing as childhood for kids in the medieval period, and yet, the evidence is not really what's important to us so much as getting what we want. That's that's really the problem. The problem is us just wanting what we want and not loving the truth. We really need to be about the truth, first and foremost. First of all, let truth be pure. And then, subsequently, we bring in all these considerations and mitigations Against being harsh with the truth or unpleasant or ugly or what have you with each other over the truth. Yes, in gentleness and respect, but gentleness and respect cannot be a cloak for throwing out the truth and saying we want unity, we want fellowship, we want friendship, we want to get along and not make waves and not upset anybody, not ruffle feathers. You know what? If they're ruffled, they're ruffled. Don't try to ruffle feathers on purpose in a sadistic, mean-spirited sort of a way, but the truth is so critically, critically important, and we need to become better acquainted with a rich tradition in Western civilization and a rich tradition among God's people specifically. This is why it's a tradition the way that we know it in Western civilization for us to question claims that are made that the evidence doesn't support or which are contradictory, if things don't add up reasonably, logically, they don't add up, they don't conform to what else we know to be true, somebody comes along and they're making some outlandish statement or promise or accusation and it doesn't accord with what we know to be true, well then, we have got to have an appetite for questioning that, for critiquing that and forgiving due process to what is actually true. Is this true? Is it not true? Is it false? If it's false, then why is it false? How did you fall victim to a falsehood? And how do you not next time? And how do we amend this? How do we make good choices together and individually for God's glory and for one another's benefit? Speaking of, the CDC is considering making COVID vaccine mandates Uh, a prerequisite for public school attendance nationwide. Also, in the same week that that uh, came across my field of view, I also read a story, a couple people sent it to me, that Boston University has developed a COVID strain that has an 80% kill rate in mice. And uh, that is to say, at least to my mind, The idea that the original virus was engineered and released on a schedule at a convenient and necessary time for the global elites is uh, pretty conclusively proven. I'm, I'm convinced that it was engineered in a lab. It was released at a convenient time to accomplish social and political change around the world. But I'm also reading stories weekly of totally healthy people. Abruptly dying for no reason, just falling dead at sporting events, at public events, in very good shape, very healthy, totally fine one minute, and then the next minute, dead. And that is highly suspicious. And not only is it highly suspicious, I see everybody who's commenting on this on conservative uh, media kind of skirting around the fact that this is highly suspicious, I'm going to say the quiet part out loud. Are these abrupt deaths due to the COVID vaccine? Yes or no? That's what we all want to know. That's what we all want to know. And everybody seems like they are afraid to say it, but it certainly feels as though these abrupt deaths left and right are due to the COVID vaccine. And if that's the case, is this just the beginning or... Is it going to taper off? If this is the beginning of a wave of significant population decrease, for one thing, it's highly irresponsible that the CDC is going to potentially make it mandatory for public school attendance unless, at the same time, we say school choice is the winning issue. In other words, you want to get the vaccine? It might just be the equivalent of painting lamb's blood or no over your doorposts as the angel of death passes over. You don't want to do it? All right. Give me a way out. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of Egypt or Yahweh God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this is why we homeschool. Ladies and gentlemen. And this is why private schools, private classical schools, need to take off like gangbusters. And your tax money should absolutely follow your child home, if you homeschool, or to that private Christian school or classical education school, if that's where your kid goes. It's evil if the COVID vaccine is killing healthy people with blood clots and heart failure and all sorts of other things. It's evil if it is killing healthy people and it's about to be mandated. It's about to be mandatory. This is the equivalent of Jim Jones and the Heaven's Gate cult and uh, the drinking of poisoned Kool-Aid because the man's closing in. The jig is up. It's evil. It's evil. Don't do it. it if If you put these things together, speaking of critical thinking that there is increasing evidence that the COVID vaccine is harming and killing healthy people, otherwise healthy people, and that it's about to be mandated potentially for school age kids to attend public school in the US, it would be highly irrational and irresponsible to my way of thinking to dismiss the possibility that the idea of the COVID vaccine was to kill off a lot of us, and to make infertile even more of us. And to identify others of us who would be trouble in the new world order as the global elites want to see it. It sounds crazy until you start asking, what else explains these things going together? And why the uh, bombing of the Georgia Guidestones? And why all of this kicking off right before the 2020 election that Trump was expected to win Handily because the economy was booming and he was succeeding Despite every effort by the media By the elites by the establishment of both parties by the FBI the deep state Within our own government To sabotage him He was going to win Then you get all the Jeffrey Epstein and human trafficking and pedophilia uh, Allegations Revelations around the same time, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, neither did his buddy over in Paris. And right when, if things were above board, you would expect a whole lot of very wealthy and powerful people in the US and in Europe to get arrested and stand trial for being involved in the prostitution of underage girls. Right when you would expect that all to be happening. Here's COVID. It's a very, very curious thing. Now you're locked down. Now you're not allowed to go to church. Now you're thrown out of work. Now your business is closed. It's a very, very curious thing. And I'm not saying that COVID was released to kill off a lot of us by our own shadow government or the global elites, but I'm saying it's a possibility and it feels increasingly plausible when other things just flat don't add up. It feels increasingly plausible for the exact same reasons that Herod sent troops to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem under two years of age when he found out that Jesus had been born there. It feels plausible in the same way that Pharaoh instructing the midwives to kill Hebrew baby boys born alive makes sense. But Australia's government is apparently offering to pay for funerals if folks who were forced there to get the vaccine die from it. And all I can conclude from that is that it's possible that the COVID vaccine very well could kill you. Otherwise, why would you say that? The struggle over the narrative here and conformity versus freedom here, it reminds me of the kinds of short video reels Joe Rogan posts to Instagram. There was one last night I was watching It came up in my feed of this hiker or climber wearing a GoPro who is making his way up this steep hill, climbing these rocks, when all of a sudden a black bear up above him comes charging and lunges at him. And somehow or another, he throws up an arm and sidesteps and the bear goes tumbling past him down the hill and he starts screaming at this thing this black bear is just relentless and aggressive and coming again and again and again. And he's having to pound it with his fist. He has to kick it in the face with his foot. And it goes on for a pretty ridiculous length of time until the black bear realizes that it's more trouble than it's worth. He lost his chance and he goes on down the hill and off. And then the hiker continues climbing up, obviously shaken. I mean, If that wouldn't shake you, I don't know what would. But then there was another one this morning. I'm scrolling through Instagram just briefly. And here's another Joe Rogan reel of a raccoon struggling for a really long time with an iguana next to somebody's pool. Good sized iguana. And the raccoon has it by the back of the neck and is wrestling with it. And eventually, after what seems like an eternity, but it's probably a good two or three minutes straight, eventually the raccoon bites through the back of the neck enough to where the iguana is dead and goes limp and gets carried off into the bushes. And of course, the raccoon's going to eat the iguana. But it was intense and it was disturbing and it was uncomfortable. And the big idea here is, what kind of morality do you expect from people who are demanding that your children and you and all of us believe we're just animals? What kind of morality are you expecting from folks who hate God? And they make that clear systematically across the board. What kind of ethics, what kind of truthfulness, what kind of political Maneuvers do you expect they are capable of or incapable of, given what we know by their own admissions they believe about themselves, about us, about the world? It's not hard to put the pieces together and come up with some very disturbing possibilities. For instance, there's a piece by Megan Basham at the Daily Wire How Church Leaders Aligned with Fauci to Discredit Experts Opposed to COVID Mandates. Some big takeaways here, and I'll put a link in the description for this episode. Francis Collins and Dr. Fauci both at the NIH and NIAID waged a propaganda war to discredit and smear respected, highly celebrated, well-established scientists and experts like epidemiologist Dr. J. Bhattacharya, for instance, professor of medicine at Stanford. You don't get to be professor of medicine at Stanford by being an idiot, by the way. Just pro tip there. Somebody tells you they're professor of medicine at Stanford. They know a thing or two, you know, whether you agree with them or not. They're not idiots. But epidemiologist, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, other scientists, other experts, spoke out early against the lockdowns and the mandates for masks and vaccines and even as we're being told to trust the experts, trust the science, we had scientists and experts who were saying, this doesn't make sense. This is not good. This hold, hold on. This is not good science. Something else is going on here. And they were systematically discredited, driven out, silenced, suppressed, censored, punished, threatened. And the really disturbing thing is you had prominent figures in American evangelicalism corresponding with... And coordinating their efforts with Francis Collins behind the scenes, they were willing accomplices in maligning the integrity, maturity, and sincerity perceived of American Christians who attempted to express dissent with regards to the COVID policies. And the best they could reach for it was, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but that doesn't and cannot mean everything belongs to Caesar. That's not what Jesus is saying. Render unto Caesar, what is Caesar's? Oh, that's everything, right? No. Jesus is Lord. Got a lot of Christians in the first centuries of the church martyred. Jesus is Lord. You say Caesar is Lord because you want me to participate in the cult of the emperor and worship the emperor as a god, as a loyalty test. You want me to say Caesar is Lord. I'm going to say Jesus is Lord. I'll be a good Roman citizen and obedient and submissive to the proper authorities, and respectful, and honorable, and blameless, because God calls me to that, out of reverence for Him, I will. But at the very moment where I cannot obey both Him and you, I'm going to obey Him, and I'm going to call you to repentance. A great many Christian establishment types have, not may have, have conformed to the pattern of this world along decidedly progressive and leftist lines. It is in keeping with liberal theology. It's an extension of liberal theology. But these figures at all levels in the church, in America, have, to the extent that they have followed lockstep, the kind of liberal theology that J. Gresham Machen rebuked and warned against 100 years ago, they have diminished our respect for the authority of God by making rule by supposed experts, only certain experts, mind you, who affirm liberal presuppositions, but making the rule of supposed experts more sacred than a close observance of what God's word says, particularly where independence, cheerful giving, and the safeguarding of the purity of the truth are concerned. In short, we Christians in America need a civics lesson like crazy. And we can get one if we read works like Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke. Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. Also, your Bible. Read your Bible. (laughs) Read the City of God by Augustine. There's a long, rich tradition of Christian political philosophy that we have lost, and we don't know. And speaking of the Middle Ages, they came to an end only when Europe dusted off older, works on philosophy, science, art, architecture, theology, politics, the prescription for us is going to be identical. And we can make this as long and drawn out as we want, or we can make it a lot briefer by God's grace. If we don't want to be correctable, if we don't want to be wise, God's not going to force us. We can just suffer the consequences like fools. But I think that the folks pulling the strings behind Francis Collins and Dr. Fauci are like that raccoon and that black bear in the Joe Rogan reels. And do we want to be the hiker or do we want to be the iguana? That's the question put before us. Lastly, very last, on a happier note, (laughs) because that's pretty dark stuff, admittedly, but it's serious and we need to pay attention to it. Before we adjourn this episode, a word about Myers-Briggs personality tests, particularly mine, because I know my own best. I have taken the Myers-Briggs type indicator test offered by 16personalities.com three times in the past four years. Two years apart, each time I've taken it, I got the exact same with one difference the first two times. So, April 12th, 2018. I was actually still working for ZI at the time. I got ENTJ and an A for assertive. 57% assertive, 54% extroverted, 80% intuitive, 76% thinking, 58% judging, 57% assertive. They call that the commander personality type. Fast forward to March 28th, 2020, so we were just getting into COVID lockdowns. My family and I had not lived in Colorado, but six months at that point, I took the test again and I got ENTJ again, commander personality type, but this time I got turbulent I went from being 57% assertive to 61% turbulent, which I guess makes a lot of sense if in some measure our circumstances and choices made with regards to our circumstances and circumstances that forced us to make certain choices, et cetera, et cetera. If that in some measure caused turbulence in our lives and I just had to kind of adapt to be more turbulent lest I get shook around like a rag doll (laughs) by life, Then I guess it makes a lot of sense, but very, very little shift in extroverted versus introverted. I went from a 54% to a 53%. Very little difference in my energy going from 80% intuitive to 78% intuitive. Tactics, I actually became much more judgy, supposedly. I went from 58% judging to 72% judging. But yesterday, I took the test again, and it's been two and a half years, actually, since the last time, and I went from being an ENTJ, the commander type, to being an ENFJ. So one letter each time, two years apart, has changed, and this time, it was my nature, from thinking to feeling. And it's interesting, though, because it actually was already changing from 2018 to 2020. I went from 76% thinking to 60% thinking, which is a 16% drop, a 16-point shift from thinking to feeling, and then from March 2020 till yesterday, October 2022, I went from 60% thinking to 54% feeling, which is to say from 16, from a 16% drop from 2018 to 2020, I go to a 14 point drop or rise, depending on how you want to look at it, a 16 point shift, and then a a 14 point shift, a total of 30 point shift from thinking to feeling over the course of the past four years. And I'm not quite sure what's driving that. I, I really, I don't, fully know. But it is interesting. It It's very interesting. Again, not much of a change in my extroversion versus introversion scores. I went from 53% in 2020 to 56% in 2022. As far as being intuitive, my energy being intuitive, I went from 78% to 81%. So it's very, very tight I am an intuitive person consistently over time. I am a slightly extroverted person consistently over time. It's pretty even, but I lean more extroverted. My wife is very introverted, but I I lean slightly extroverted, but you could I think you could call me an ambivert in that 50% range. Tactics did not change much at all. There was a 3 point swing I went from 72% judging to 69% judging, just slightly less judgmental. Turbulence, there was a 1% change. I went from 61% to 60%. But my type has gone from being the commander the previous two times to being the protagonist, which is fun. I went from being an ENTJ to being an ENFJ. 16personalities.com says that protagonists feel called to serve a greater purpose in life. Thoughtful and idealistic, these personality types strive to have a positive impact on other people and the world around them. They rarely shy away from an opportunity to do the right thing, even when doing so is far from easy. Protagonists are born leaders, which explains why these personalities can be found among many notable politicians, coaches, and teachers. Their passion and charisma allow them to inspire others, not just in their careers, but in every arena of their lives, including their relationships. And I won't read this whole thing for you. It's interesting to me, but to some extent, I uh, empathize with the cynics who say, this is just a modern day horoscope. (laughs) Oh, you were born under the uh, Scorpio sign? Let me tell you what your year is going to be like. You know, I think it's a little bit better than that. I think it's actually a lot, a lot bit better than that. There's more that goes into our personality types than just being born under certain stars. But, you know, quite frankly, the flip side is there's not nothing to us being born during certain signs and seasons. There's not nothing to that. There is more than nothing to what day it is, what year it is. What decade it is, what century it is, what part of the world, and et cetera, et cetera. So, with regards to me being this protagonist type, my personality having changed, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't have to change a whole, whole lot, but we know that over the course of seven years, a lot of people have said this at least. So, I'm assuming it's true by word of mouth, by popular consensus. Over the course of seven years, all of the cells in your body will have been replaced to where, physically speaking, you will be an entirely new person. In terms of material, you're an entirely new person in seven years. But that doesn't happen with a switch being flipped on the seven-year mark. It's happening gradually, day by day. If it can happen from a material standpoint that we are somewhat in flux or grow, adapt, change, improve, regress from a physical standpoint, well then, one would imagine also in terms of your personality, your temperament, how you think, how you see the world, how you relate to people around you, whether you think or feel more, whether you're judgmental or perceptive, observant, intuitive, I don't mind, by the way, I don't mind this uh, protagonist type. I think that's okay. That, that's that's an all right place to be. Commander, maybe a lot of people are tired of being told what to do all the time. So maybe a commander is not what's needed at this moment as I see it. In fact, I'm, I'm fairly sure that's a lot of what's in the mix. A commander is not what's needed so much as someone willing to say, No, and to point out the villain and to fight them if needs be, because villains should be fought and they will be, but that's all the time I've got. I got to run my first day off. I've got a doctor's appointment to get some asthma medication prescriptions refilled. I got to run to Fort Collins and should leave here shortly. But as always, thank you for listening until next time. God bless.